This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. As we discussed in the first part of this series, so much of what we do today was decided a long time ago. Things we maybe take for granted, like what side of the road we drive on, why every movie theater has to sell popcorn, and that this sound means something negative, and this one means something positive. Somewhere along the way, we made those decisions. So who in the early church decided to take the text of the Bible and make a theological stance from it? Well, somebody had to. One such meeting of the minds came together to put down a heresy that said that Jesus wasn't God. That meeting is known today as the First Council of Nicaea, and it was organized by the Roman Emperor Constantine, a man who, truth be told, seems to have been a little conflicted about his own religious beliefs. The First Council of Nicaea, instituted by Constantine, settled a debate that now forms the backbone of Catholicism, Protestantism, and Evangelicalism. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We've pressed pause on the culture wars to see how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Sterren. This is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. The faith itself was still something new to the world, only perhaps 300 years old by the time of Constantine. Christians had been persecuted on and off, basically that whole time. They were beaten, killed, and driven underground. Then they'd take a break, only to be beaten, killed, and driven underground. They were running for their lives. As the faith spread through the empire and the world, strange ideas started to sneak into the faith. Some came from trying to mix Christianity with paganism. They tried to squeeze their old belief system into the new one. and. It didn't work so well. It really never does. Take the Roman Emperor Constantine. He claimed to be Christian, but he retained his position as the head of the state pagan cult his whole life. He fought in the name of Christ, then built monuments to the sun god. Pick a lane, Constantine. The further society and the church got from the apostles, the more they had to work to stay true to the scriptures that had been left behind. There are two basic lines of thought when it comes to the Bible. One, that the Bible gives us a clear idea of who God is and what he wants from us. And the other, let's just say that some people decide to get creative. One way that people did that back in Constantine's time was called Arianism. This was just one of the heresies of the day, but it sparked a really important conference. 
the first Council of Nicaea in 325. Here again is Professor Gerald Bray. Arianism as a belief, as a general belief, uh, said that the Son of God was not eternal, uh, that the Son of God had um, had been born, had been begotten by the Father uh, before the creation of the world. They didn't think that that uh, you know he was just Jesus of Nazareth, uh, sort of elevated to the level of God. Uh, they thought he was a, a spiritual creature, higher than the highest of the angels, but nevertheless a creature, not the creator. Uh, and this was the key, you see, uh, the question is, could someone who was not the creator, in other words, not God, actually save us and bring us into contact with God? So hopefully you see why the Council of Nicaea was so important. If you know anything about Christianity at all, it's probably this, that Christians believe that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, healed a lot of people, claimed to be God, and was crucified only to be raised from the dead. He did all that in our place because we were the ones who sinned against God. We deserve to die for those sins, but Jesus died instead. So those are the basics of the faith. But what if Jesus isn't God? He's just some guy. That would mean the crucifixion wasn't God taking the punishment on himself, but just taking it out on some really nice person. At its core, Arianism strips the faith of its meaning. That's what Arianism was about. And it was spreading. So the Roman Emperor Constantine called a meeting of the minds to deal with the problem. Hence, the First Council of Nicaea. A group of people had to get together at some point to codify that theology, that the Father and the Son are one, which may sound sinister to some listeners. What right do church leaders have to come up with this stuff so many years after Christ's death? Well, here's the thing. They didn't. Those claims are in the Bible. On your own time, read John 5 and John 8:58, just for starters. What they were doing at the Council of Nicaea was codifying these ideas into doctrine, which had to be done at some point. Up until then, Christians had been widely persecuted. It's not like they'd had a lot of time to hold meetings to decide this stuff. And while some believed in Arianism, they were not the majority, and they certainly weren't holding to scripture. So they came together in 325 at a meeting called by Constantine. They invited bishops from all over the empire, but this wasn't the first time those guys had gotten together. There's yet another heresy that goes around, one that you hear in modern day, actually, that Constantine called the First Council of Nicaea so he could define the whole religion. He would basically set its parameters. You can hear this in the movie The Da Vinci Code and the book by the same name by Dan Brown. And to strengthen this new Christian tradition, Constantine held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. And at this council, the many sects of Christianity debated and uh, voted on everything from the acceptance and rejection of specific Gospels to the date for Easter to the ministry of the sacraments and, of course, the immortality of Jesus. By infusing Jesus the man with the divine magic, by making him capable of uh, earthly miracles as well as his own resurrection, Constantine turned him into a god but within the The trouble with so many of Dan Brown's assertions is that even the slightest amount of research debunks them. Because the theological gist of what was talked about at Nicaea was actually decided 
before Nicaea. At a meeting of religious leaders, guess what? Constantine wasn't even there. But about six months before that, uh, a group of them got together in Antioch um, because they said, well, you know, we don't want the emperor deciding what our faith should be, uh, you know, how we should express it. So we're going to, it was a kind of pre-council uh, strategic meeting. You know, we're going to plan what we're going to say and what we're going to insist on. Um, and they did that in Antioch um, and then went from there to the council at Nicaea and basically um, uh, presented their findings, their, their conclusions to the first council, to the council of Nicaea at that particular point. So the, the decision, if you like, was already taken um, uh, or at least you know, was was devised by this group of people uh, before the council met. Can we all just agree not to listen to Dan Brown anymore? Thank you. So they got together in Antioch to hash out everything before they got to present it to Constantine. They didn't invent the idea that Christ is divine. Evidence of that is plentiful in scripture. The councils just had to get their minds wrapped around that concept. Once they got it together, they codified it with a Nicene Creed. Now, a creed is not just a band from the late 90s. Creeds are also concise statements of theology that are helpful for distilling truth, especially in a time when not everybody could read. It seems that what happened at Nicaea was that the, the, the fathers of the council decided to take this form, this way of doing things, and uh, create out of it a, a statement, a kind of um, press release, if you like, um, <laughs> you know, uh, which would say at the end, well, this is, this is the content of our faith. This is what we believe. It's a nice, tight way to express basic beliefs, just like a press release. Here is a taste of the creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Okay, so that's basic monotheism. There is a God. He created everything. Now, here comes the key stuff. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Hear that? Very God of very God. Christ is God one with God, begotten and not made. The Council of Nicaea put that concept into a nice, compact statement that was easy to remember, with the goal of shutting down Arianism, much the same way the Southern Baptist Convention, say, might condemn the curse of Ham, to reference another episode. And in some denominations today, the Nicene Creed is still a part of the regular worship service. But let's turn to other facets of Constantine's legacy. This one is tied to his mother, Helena. It was her job to preserve special sites relevant to the faith, which may not seem that important now, but many people throughout Christian history considered specific sites to be holy, special. It was Helena who was put in charge of preserving some of those areas. Some of the places that Helena preserved would become very important during the Crusades. She also symbolizes something prominent in early Christianity that still continues today, the obsession over relics. For example, my brother and I were recently in the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. At the very far end of the church, we saw this glass case that is about as tall as my hip. 
Inside, through red opaque glass, I could just make out a circle, and inside that glass case is said to be Jesus' crown of thorns. People come from all over the world to kiss the case that the crown is in when it's presented just a few times a year. See, I'm not really a big relic guy, but even that made me stop for a moment. There's something about seeing objects from history that really give us a thrill. I mean, if you don't believe me, stand in line to see the Declaration of Independence in DC. I don't care how patriotic you are, you'll probably still get the chills. So we can still see religious relics today. Whether or not they're authentic or have any power, I couldn't tell you. Still, Helena went out on a mission to preserve these pieces of culture. And here is Professor David Potter. Constantine's relationship with Helena is, I think, one of the most important of his life. Now, when he sent uh, Helena to Jerusalem, of course, he had a great difficulty in that he had just split with his wife, Fausta. Divorce is another sign that maybe Constantine didn't totally get Christianity. Because of the divorce... Um, there was no empress. That role was filled now by Helena, uh, who needed to really show the banner for the imperial family. And as part of a great PR campaign for Constantine, Helena was able to identify and preserve ancient wonders from the time of Jesus. And she, of course, uh, encouraged the building of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, which is again there today, another legacy of the time of Constantine. This is the church that purports to be built on the land where Jesus was crucified and the site of his tomb. It is a major point of religious pilgrimage and has been even since the Crusades. The church was sparked by Helena. You can see recent pictures of the church on our website at trucepodcast.com. She was also said to have found part of Jesus's cross, though this claim can't be substantiated. Some of it is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Here's the thing with relics. On top of us not knowing whether or not they're real, it's easy for them to become idols in and of themselves. The thing that's supposed to spark worship of God becomes an object of worship. Some people see these items as a way to get physically closer to God, even though if you trust in Christ, you're already supposed to have the Spirit living inside you. And you can't get much closer than that. Which brings us to Constantine's other legacy for Christianity. There are two major parts. One is his influence on the relationship between church and state, and the other is his bond with idols and paganism. Despite having been a convert and directing the Council of Nicaea, he retained his role as Pontifus Maximus, or head of the state religious pagan cult. Okay, so that couldn't have been good. If there's one pattern you see in the Old Testament kings, even the good ones, it's this desire to follow God and worship idols. It's easy for us to call him out today because we think we're more enlightened. Yet, paganism sneaks into our Christian churches today. I mean, think of how many people read horoscopes, for instance, you know, or are afraid of black cats or, you know, won't walk under ladders or something because they're superstitious. So superstition hasn't disappeared. I mean, it's not respectable in our society, uh, you know, but but it's there and uh, underneath and and we just ignore it um you know very often so um uh, you know we're not really any better than these people were see church we've got some work to do just like constantine did now despite his flaws god used this roman emperor to do a lot of good things that we've already mentioned plus he abolished execution by crucifixion gladiatorial games as punishment for crimes committed and gave tax exemptions to priests. 
Of course, they were the same tax breaks for pagan priests, but you take what you can get. Pagan temples and shrines and things like that. Some of them were destroyed, uh, but a lot were just taken over by the church and turned into Christian places of worship. I mean, the most famous uh, of these is the Parthenon in Athens, uh, because the Parthenon was a pagan temple dedicated to the goddess Athena, who was a virgin goddess. And the word Parthenon means virgin. Uh, and it was just rededicated to the Virgin Mary. Which is one of the reasons that architecture for early churches so closely resembles architecture for early pagan temples. Many early churches were just repurposed pagan temples. Like how so many towns today have old Pizza Hut buildings with those stylized slope roofs that have been turned into new businesses. But we all still know, that used to be a Pizza Hut. As for church and state, it very quickly became politically convenient to be a Christian. People pretended to convert just to please the emperor, which meant there were a lot of false believers. Later that century, in 380 AD, Emperor Theodosius made belief in Christianity a command, calling non-Christians demented and insane. Constantine opened the door, and Theodosius forced people through it. Don't you just want to reach back in time and slap the guy? That's just bad form. I don't care who you are. Theodosius's actions only made it more attractive to use your faith as a tool for political gain. Everyone had to at least pretend to be a Christian. So people took advantage of the system, to the point where it caused divisions within the empire every time there was a theological debate. The church became a political machine. Which brings us to one of the main reasons I wanted to tell you this story in the first place. Constantine represents the beginning of our battle with church and state. And what happens to the cause of the gospel when non-believers see Christians trying to get the ear of the king? Is that the message we want to convey? That the church is in power? That it's every bit as pagan as the world? Or do we want to help widows and orphans? Which is a theme I know I keep coming back to. That is what we're told in the New Testament is true religion. Helping widows and orphans. Do we want to set people free with the gospel? Or do we want to control them? This is the tipping point. When history changed. When Christians had the ear of the king for the very first time. And for better or for worse, came into power. So the next time you have a discussion about church and state, think about Constantine and how that debate really took off in his time. Truce is a listener-supported podcast. Please help us out by giving a little bit of money on Patreon. In fact, you can even set it up so that it gives a little bit of money each month. I'd love to turn my whole attention to this project and bring you more episodes on a regular basis. If your business or ministry is interested in advertising on the show, or if you have some questions or comments, please drop me a line at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at trucepodcast. Subscribe to the show, find pictures and links, learn more about my novel Cradle Robber, and about my films Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls, now streaming on Amazon Prime, all at trucepodcast.com. Special thanks to David Potter for talking about his book, Constantine the Emperor, as well as Gerald Bray, who has a book called Creeds, Councils, and Christ. I'm also indebted to Bruce Shelley's excellent Church History in Plain Language. 
Mike Demetrius gave invaluable advice for this episode. Our logo is by Andy Huff, and marketing help comes from the ever-patient Roy Browning from the Business Acumen Podcast. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce.